Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Sandra Kang, one of the founders of the Global Movement for Myanmar Democracy, also known as GM4MD. Founded in response to the military coup in February, GM4MD is a youth-led, grassroots organization supporting Myanmar's fight for a federal democracy through international coordinated action. Born in Baltimore, USA to Chinese Myanmar parents, Sandra was intrigued by the cultural history of her family. Her connection to the country grew following two work placements in Myanmar. When the coup broke out in February 2021, Sandra sprung quickly to action. Since then, she and the team at GM4MD have worked tirelessly to advocate for Myanmar across the world. Here, Sandra talks about their mission to leverage social media to raise awareness among the diaspora and the broader international community through advocacy, global campaigns and health and wellness initiatives, all the while pushing to create a greater youth empowerment culture. Let's start the conversation. Hey, Sandra. Hi. Hello, um, how are you? How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. I'm uh, starting my first day of medical school tomorrow, so uh, I've been taking this weekend a little bit slow in preparation for that. Wow, just knowing how much you do already and just remembering that you actually are studying and all of those things as well, it's uh, it's crazy. So I guess, Sandra, like it would be great if you just gave us a little bit of background about you. And I mean, I think, are you second generation Myanmar? Yeah, yeah. So um, I am second generation Chinese Burmese American, meaning my parents immigrated to America in their late 20s, early 30s. So I was born in LA and moved to Texas when I was two months old. And have you been brought up, Sandra, in the culture? Like, have your parents kept the Burmese culture strong within the family? I think aspects of it, even within Myanmar itself, the Chinese Burmese community often did feel separated. I think like other ethnic minority groups, they felt some exclusion. And that's, you know, even in place in the laws by the military. However, my parents did keep a lot of cultural aspects, religion. So they both practiced Buddhism and there was a monastery where we would go to quite often. And I call it Ponji Jiao and we listen to sermons on Sundays and participate in a lot of celebrations and holidays at the monastery. And I think food is also a big part of our own culture and that's often like a Chinese Burmese cuisine infusion is what I eat at home. Did your parents leave for political reasons or just because they wanted to move to America for work and things like that? Yeah, for work. Yeah. So Sandra, like how aware were you of the history of Myanmar in terms of the military, the 88 uprising and things like that? Was that something you were very aware of prior to the coup this year? Is that something that you're learning as we go? Honestly, yeah, the history of all of that was something I knew on a very surface and shallow level. Like I had worked in Myanmar twice for public health projects. And I think through that, I learned a little bit more about the intricacies of the culture there. But it's not something that my parents really taught me or told me about and something that I definitely didn't learn in school. So when the coup happened this year, like you seem to spring into action immediately. What moved within you? for you to become so active? Yeah, um, I think it was a combination of circumstance and having personal connections on the ground. And so one being that I happened to be 
in a place where I could take a lot of time and prioritize this. So there were a lot of like flexible job responsibilities that I ended up putting on the back burner to, to pursue the work we're doing with GeoInformed and other coalition work. But even then, just having been to Myanmar and hearing the updates from family and friends on the ground and seeing also a lot of lack of activity or inaction among other Burmese diaspora, I felt that having that personal connection and having been there in person and the willingness and drive was something that I really wanted to continue to contribute in the virtual space. So that's where I ended up seeing my priorities shift a bit in, in terms of putting work and other projects aside. And where did the idea for GM4MD come from? Yeah, the, the story about GM4MD is, is a fun one. Um, because I actually found one of the co-founders, Jen Jen, through Instagram. So I think most people often turn to, in my generation, social media to find about information and how to get involved in movements. And so I already had a lot of friends who were actively posting about petitions that were being circulated. And there were a couple of active Instagram accounts, one of them being called Stant. It's a student-led movement to end mass atrocity and genocide. And they had posted a couple of helpful infographics and they had something called the Burma team. And I was surprised to see any Burmese advocacy done by students just because Myanmar's already talked about very minimally on among circles and in mainstream media, much less students. And so through this organization, I talked to Jen Jen and saw that she was posting about a group of international diaspora and friends of Myanmar coming together to help Myanmar. And um, there was this growing Slack channel for this. And so I thought, See some like a more productive space to actually do things that are tangible. And when I um, talked to her later that week, she actually had a call planned with Frank, the third co-founder, Frank Summers. And so we had a group call that same day. And among all three of us, we had saw how people were trying to scramble around and find something to do or do something to help. But I was remembering how I was that student who didn't know where to go or how to reach out to people or what organization to go to if I, as a student, wanted to get involved. And so we wanted to provide that inclusive space and a platform for people to collaborate, for people to have tangible work and hopefully give them the network and mentorship, given that Frank has a lot of long mentors in, in Myanmar, given his previous work and Jen Jen had already been active in political advocacy for the past couple of years and engaged in our Kachin community. And so... We decided to formalize GM4MD beyond just being a platform. And that's where we saw all of our projects start snowballing and rolling once we recruited our team in mid-February. So tell us a little bit, Sandra, about some of the things that you've done, because you've actually accomplished quite a lot in a very short space of time. And I, I know a lot of people will already know about you guys, but I know for others, maybe they don't. So maybe just like give us some additional information about projects that you've been doing and the advocacy work and the different fundraisers and things. Yeah, we couldn't have done all we've done without our really amazing team. And so when we first thought about what GM4MD could be, like you said, it was like a platform. We wanted to not overstep ourselves as a new organization, but more so amplify current efforts on the ground and messages on the ground. And so what we were seeing first that was needed was raising awareness and advocacy through grassroots methods. Of course, in a virtual space in this time, primarily because of COVID. So we actually spent a lot of time talking to mentors and different players, ethnic advocacy organizations, international organizations, just to get a sense of what they've been doing so far and how they were responding to the coup. And we saw that our best methods were using social media to mobilize mass numbers of people 
and use our platform to reach out to other communities who may not have heard about Myanmar before. So some of our projects fall under a couple of umbrellas. So one of them being campaigns. And so our very first project was actually our UN campaign. And it was our way to first just show what GM4MD's morals and missions and values were all about and how we were amplifying the work of others. And so Kino Moore from Progressive Voice Action had released a letter signed by hundreds of civil society organizations. And we wanted to extend the support for this among the international community. So we ended up circulating our own petition supporting the letter. And we ended up getting over 10,000 signatures in a couple of days. And Frank took the time to print out the letter and all of these signatures and sent the letter to UN member states. And I don't believe we got a response from all of them, but a few of them did and recognized the letter itself. And it was a great way for our team to start coming together and show how we did have the potential to mobilize and reach out on such a massive scale. And so after that, we've put together a couple of other campaigns. And this was more around the mission of keeping the story of Myanmar alive, as we saw that as months passed into the coup, Myanmar wasn't you know hot news, hot topic anymore. So um, we launched an Earth Day campaign in solidarity with Earth Day in April and hosted fundraisers, participated in climate change workshops and talked to climate change activists and related how the military coup was causing and exacerbating climate change issues in Myanmar. So that was such a rewarding week of events that showed how we could be better uh, solidarity partners for other activists who are using similar methods to us, but are you know focusing on their own causes and how we can come together to really amplify each other's work. And we've done other um, advocacy campaigns, one being our medical advocacy campaign, and this was to raise awareness of COVID. And we also included fundraisers and such. And so through these campaigns, we saw that it was a really great way to reach out, to mobilize, to provide direct support through fundraising and give something people tangible and meaningful to work on together as, as a group. So like I mentioned, um, fundraisers were a component of our campaigns and we've kept that alive. And I think something unique about our fundraisers is that we're able to shift the support and need and provide a lot of clarity in where the funds are going. We were refraining from hosting our own fundraisers unless we saw that there was a missing link. And we saw that with um, medical supplies really early on. There weren't many that were being hosted under a nonprofit and one that was being very clear and targeted towards medical supplies and emergency supplies. We started that pretty early on in March or April. And since then, we've shifted to more COVID relief. And of course, there are a lot of fundraisers now also addressing this, but we have a good network that one of our members, Ashley, is connected to. And we've kept that alive as well and are hoping that fundraising will be able to meet within our missions long term. And among the work of our advocacy and GM4MD about bringing people together, just helping coordinate, Suzanne, actually, you're a part of this mini like global advocacy network um, that was quite active pretty early on in the coup. Our goal here was to create grassroots movements globally. And so we were able to host a couple of events in coordination, uh, one being a global virtual protest in March, where we had different country representatives from, I think, 18 plus countries come onto a giant Zoom call and show solidarity for and support for those on the ground. I think that's most important what we can do as they continue their fight now six months later on. And um, it's hopefully been a productive space for people to just find support from one another and find out how other countries are pursuing their advocacy mechanisms. 
And through this network, I also saw a lot of individuals who may not have had any experience in grassroots advocacy before um, really flourish, especially the youth. And so it was really wonderful to see how we were able to provide that mentorship for others. We were able to help one another in this network. And, you know, as advocacy is changing its priorities and missions, it's nice to see this collaboration and open-minded and productive conversation among everyone. Have you had any challenges getting the money that you've managed to raise into the country and to be able to get the aid relief that you've been providing in terms of COVID? Has that been okay to be able to do? Yeah, I don't know and probably couldn't share the specific details of how that money is transferred. But what we are able to do is provide it to the cores of the networks in Myanmar who are able to transfer it over. So on our Give Butter page, which is where we are hosting our fundraisers, our coordinator, Ashley, has been giving us updates and receipts and the actual products that are being transferred, which is really, really exciting. That's amazing. It's amazing what you've achieved and it's amazing what you continue to do. In terms of like your other students that aren't involved in this and your other friends that you, you have on your course and stuff, when you mention the work that you do, what's, what's their typical reaction? Are they amazed by what you're doing? Do they want to get involved? Like, how is this received? Is there a, a knowledge generally of what's going on in Myanmar and the people that are on your course? This is just my own curiosity. Yeah, I think like it tends to be that people who are well read on these kind of conflicts, when I had brought up my work or they found out about my work, Early in February and March, there was like a recognition of, oh, yes, I read about it in the news. I read it on articles. I saw it on Instagram. But especially as we're going into April and May, as the complexity of the situation really evolves, even among those who are well-read, don't really know what's happening on the ground anymore. But this also just may have been the circles that I was involved in. But a lot of them like either hadn't really heard of Myanmar, like didn't really know where the country was to begin with, or just knew nothing about the coup and it came as a surprise, like, oh, I didn't know this was happening there. Or, oh, I didn't even know there was a like strong military dictatorship presence in, in Myanmar. So when it comes up in verbal conversation, it is a very like brief explanation that I try to give. But I, I do see that among other students, among the Myanmar diaspora, some students were reaching out to me pretty early on, like, oh, how do I get involved? We'd love to learn more. And so that's something that we try to funnel people towards and to inform you either like here's a platform where you can work with others or within certain countries, there are ways to get involved in political advocacy and lobbying. But you've definitely seen that interest waver a lot now, now that's been six months later. And so that's something we're trying to think more thoughtfully about. Um, how can we give people meaning in the work they do and interests if they're not so certain with their identity and why they should even be advocating for Myanmar? And that kind of touches another work area that GM4B has been working on, which is broadly people and culture. And Dej and I talked a lot about early on in the coup, how even myself, I felt like there was a lot of like cultural apathy or a sense of um, lack of identity with Myanmar, especially being born in America, having to do with fitting in into America, transitioning, or sometimes parents not really passing down that culture itself too. And so what we try to do online is embrace culture and help foster that among our community. So back in March, Jenjen hosted a culture night where different parts of the diaspora across the world came on and showed aspects of their culture, whether it be dance, fashion, poetry. And so we had wanted to keep this alive through our people and culture team. And so I believe a month ago, we had Chinese Burmese as well as I believe Kachin diaspora come on and speak about what it meant to be growing up outside of Myanmar or being born in Myanmar and moving to another country at a young age. And so we're hoping to keep this alive and hopefully it'll 
help foster a better response to what's happening in Myanmar and more action, especially among the diaspora now. I think just what you were saying there as well, Sandra, about, you know, people who early on were so active. And I think it is six months later. I think a lot of people didn't realize maybe, you know, young people, how long this may potentially go on for. And even I noticed back in February and March, like people were so active and now I don't see them anywhere. So some are burnt out. Some just can't manage that on top of their regular life. Some just mental well-being for many reasons. They just can't keep going. And how do you keep going? Because you are managing to uh, hold it all together. So how, how do you do it? Yeah, I definitely had to take a big step back. I think like February and March, my life revolved around this just because there was just so much to do and so much coordination that in the urgency felt like, you know, things couldn't wait. But, you know, as we were starting to become more aware of how it was a long-term fight and I was returning back to school in April, I think it was putting like a capacity and time limit, honestly, on how many hours in a day we could spend on this. And so for me, that meant, you know, sectioning out time in my schedule and my calendar for work specifically on Myanmar. But also it was getting the team together in a good state. And so now that we have that, we can also rely on, on one another a little bit more. Before, when the team was so scattered, didn't want to know one another. It was a lot of individuals doing individual work. So I think having a group of people to lean back on and make sure projects are still going so that you can feel like when you take a step back, uh, someone else is still there to keep the work going. That found to be really important. And among that, just having time for stress relief, family, friends. So I'm seeing also members of our team going back outside, hiking, learning to appreciate time with family again. And I think that provides a good balance, especially as people are really looking at information that's hard to see and hard to hear a lot in their work. And so providing a space for reflection and meditation. And so actually within GM4MD, we try to promote that aspects of self-care. And so uh, for a while, we were hosting weekly wellness sessions on our Facebook page where, uh, like I mentioned, uh, Ashley, our wellness coordinator, bring on different therapists or reflection activities to help people cope with the coup. And we also try to promote that within our own team meetings and have safe space conversations where people can reflect on how they've been feeling. And I think that has also helped people provide a better balance and learn to appreciate that time for themselves does not mean it's a selfish act. It's for the long run beneficial for who they're helping. Yeah, I think that's important what you're saying, you know, because there is a guilt attached to kind of doing something fun or, you know, when you see struggle, yeah, back in Myanmar. And I know a lot of people are are struggling with that, you know, that they feel guilty posting, you know, a picture of them out for dinner, you know, on their Instagram when yeah. their friends are back in Myanmar trying to stay alive. So, but but you're right, it's a long-term goal. So they can't stop living their lives either, but hopefully continue helping Myanmar at the same time. But I think you've got a really good balance. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that too, because I, for like February through April, just used my social media platform on Myanmar. And so I even felt that, yeah, as I was celebrating a big part of my life with graduating college and going to medical school and wrapping up my summer, you know, being uh, my last free self before going to a medical school with sharing these happier parts of my life. And so I think it is like one way in that social media is kind of skewed where you look at stories and posts and just see how really positive aspects of someone's life. And so I think for me, it's realizing that this platform is my platform and the intention behind it is not to push away other important parts on on the social media, but 
it is something that's an individual and, and personal space. And so I think also just like within my circles, they like to see this kind of happiness that we can share with one another as we're celebrating one another. And I think that's a really important part of life to keep going, to look, have something to look forward to, have something to celebrate and be happy about. And even with my friends and family who were on the ground, I remember when I would call them early on, sometimes what they just wanted to hear was nothing related to the coup and just something to, to keep them distracted or hearing about something positive to, in a sense, give them something to look forward to one day. And so I, I think people are starting to slowly figure out <laughs> their their balance of posting on social media and how they can still raise awareness of Myanmar and also share their happy parts of their lives. So I'm hoping that people and other youth feel more confident in doing and creating whatever platform is the most personal representative of themselves to their followers. And Sanja, like you're about to start medical school and obviously we're seeing what's happening in Myanmar to doctors and nurses and medical care workers, which is just horrific. How do you feel about that? Like just knowing that you're going into this profession, which is one of the, you know, most kind of selfless professions a person can go into and to see what's happening to, to those people in Myanmar. It must be really hard for you. Yeah. And when applying to medical school, we think a lot about like why medicine and especially through um, what we saw with COVID and through the Black Lives Matter movement about how much it is a selfless act. And so I think this even more so really strengthened my uh, understanding of what it means to be healthcare profession. And when it comes to it, the kind of sacrifices that you must be willing to make for the sake of a community's health. And so it means that I think I'll be more thoughtfully engaging in how my own profession can make a broader change and being closer to DC, how my interests and in aspects of health, whether it be, you know, policy, public health may be able to be fostered here. And also finding ways that we can provide better solidarity, understanding of colleagues in a lot of international spaces, not just Myanmar, who are working against the government or being targeted or not able to follow the ethical and medical code that they so selflessly signed on to. So it has been, you know, really shaking. But you know, within GM4MD, we have a couple of people involved in the healthcare professional fields, and so I think through the medical advocacy campaigns we've done, and also just seeing Alexandra Mona, for example, her really thoughtful curation of medical aspects of the coup on on social media is something that's keeping that fire alive. And yeah, excited to see how that can be pursued here here at Hopkins. Do you have long-term goals for GM4MD or are you just taking it like each day at a time as things develop in mm-hmm. Myanmar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mentioned a lot of the working areas were more of like a short-term response to the coup um, in terms of certain advocacy actions, whether it be in certain countries, we did when certain legislations passed or responding to certain meetings within um, ASEAN. However, we always foresaw GM4MD to be a long-term platform and for it to not dissipate just after a couple of months and become inactive. And so something that we really found was unique with GM4MD is in how it's um, youth-led, meaning that we're not necessarily just youth and we coined that by like the term of 18 to 35 year olds, but youth are leading the, the movement. And so through that, we also were seeing how on the ground, and it's been like this through cycles of revolutions, you're seeing a lack of youth empowerment and pauses in education and professional development and personal and professional growth as schools are closed, extracurricular activities are not, are not accessible. And so 
Nudge and I being youth ourselves. And among the team, you've done a lot of workshopping actually over the past month now. We do want GM4MG to start focusing on youth empowerment. And we believe that this is essential to a comprehensive democracy with a focus on minority groups who um, may not have had special attention to youth empowerment in the past. And so down the line, we are hoping that our working areas, whether it be fundraising, whether it be campaigns, whether it be these virtual spaces and conferences, we hope to shift towards a more thematic area and it can be a little bit more specific so that um, long term, there's more of a overarching mission and tangible mission to, to our work. And so we've been able to talk to different stakeholders on the ground, including a virtual university who are creating curriculums, as well as different ethnic minority groups who are focusing on, on youth empowerment right now. And so hopefully over the next couple of months, we'll be seeing this transition and, and seeing how Geoformity as an official nonprofit um, is able to play this out along with our mission to keep Myanmar alive in our grassroots campaigns and virtual spaces. As an American citizen, how easy has this process been in terms of being able to get heard and being able to get voices through in terms of your advocacy? And I'm, I'm going to show my ignorance here. I don't really fully understand the American political system, to be honest. Is it your, like state leaders? Is that your first point of contact in trying to raise awareness politically in America? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so GM4MD, early on, we were kind of acting as an incubator because of the platform we were using to communicate called Slack. And so through GM4MD, we were able to put together a mini US coalition that has now kind of launched off and focusing completely independently as it did GM4MD. And we had seen a couple of other country networks form through that as well. But yeah, we're more among US advocacy. A lot of us are based in the US, so we're involved in this coalition advocacy work as well. And of course, GM4MD just helps amplify whatever work they do. But how it works with U.S. advocacy is that Congress is our main amplifier of messages to the executive department. And so we focus a lot on lobbying to our representatives and senators in our states. So what has been happening in that space for the past couple of months is we're really trying to ramp up legislation activity among a new Burma bill. And so what that looks like is we're trying to get virtual meetings with these senators and representatives, telling them to support the bill. And so it's taken a lot of outreach to different communities just because political advocacy for, especially among immigrant communities, is a very scary space, especially because they haven't been educated on on the U.S. political scene and what it means to be able to share your voice. But Jen Jen, she's been doing a lot of amazing work with scheduling these meetings and getting them going. And so we're seeing, even though it has not been officially released, early agreements and sign-ons to this bill beforehand, which will make it all the more powerful. But to answer the question, yes, it's through a state-by-state, primarily in the U.S., regarding lobbying. But there are, of course, a lot of other um, mechanisms and lobbying executive departments. Yeah, I can only imagine the bureaucracy involved in times of trying to pass things through. Yeah. (laughs) And it's ridiculous. And America's huge and obviously different states and political entities. Yeah, just we were talking to someone the other day and it's just really stood out in my head to massively simplify things. And he said something like that the US has frozen those military assets. That's like millions of dollars. Yes. You could yeah. just like unfreeze them and redirect them and give that money to, you know, people's defense army or something. It's, yeah. It just sounds like it's such a simple thing that obviously there'll be so, so many complexities in being able to do that. And it would be very controversial and act, but. There are sanctions and the sanctions have got so far, but just any kind of more action, more forward. I don't specifically know what's involved in the Burma bill. Are you able to explain any more on that at all? 
Yeah. So yeah, among unfreezing the assets, it is a very tricky situation regarding affecting how the U.S. is recognizing the military NAG. And yeah, unfortunately, it isn't as simple as being able to just unfreeze the million dollar assets. So we've kind of slowed down from including that within our advocacy. But among the Burma bill, like you mentioned, we have been able to have really um, fruitful sanctions come through. Some of them being back in Mel, like back in April or May, we were really excited actually to see that happen quite early on. But there's also Myanmar oil and gas enterprises mode and a lot of international spaces that that's been on the agenda for some time um, or oil and gas enterprise equivalents of that. And the bill, we have not seen a draft just yet, but we're seeing that and heard from um, Cardin, Senator Cardin's office, who's, who's writing the bill, that it is asking for stronger humanitarian aid assistance from the U.S., which is very powerful, and also greater jumpstone sanctions in um, addition to Moj, and greater support for media organizations in Burma who are being targeted by the military and having a lack of donations and greater accountability for war crimes, which we'll see to be quite essential once this moves to any tribunal or justice spaces moving on. And so we find this bill to be really critical to just to keep the U.S. accountable for a lot of actions that are needed long term. And so hopefully we get this bill released sometime this month or next month. We've been waiting since May. <laughs> so I think the, the lobbying work and advocacy work we've been hosting has been quite effective. And actually, last Friday, we had a little lobby day where we had a lot of meetings scheduled with senator offices and they're still continuing into this week which is uh, very exciting and i think like we've seen as well there was a protest in, in the u.s for the 88 commemoration and there seemed to be huge yeah. numbers that showed up people traveled all the way across from california to dc so i think there was a very active group in an sf sfe burma action and they drove a bus and two buses in a truck all the way down <laughs> to DC. And at the same time, actually, there's a group called Boston Free Burma in the US. And they also rented a little caravan. And even before the protests on Saturday, they've been traveling all across the US with a giant decorated van and helping raise awareness. And so it's exciting to see that. Um, and we're fortunate in the US to have higher vaccination rates. Even now, there's you know the Delta variant circulating. But in that time where there was a little bit more of like an open border People are taking advantage of that in a really positive way and keeping the story of Myanmar alive through their transportation, which was a very creative method. Hopefully that they continue doing so in the future. So it's, it's nice to see that like, we've never seen this community and bonding of the Burmese diaspora on this large of a scale. And so we are seeing in these events a lot of presence from older generations, older folks, but you're also seeing young kids. And actually on Friday, we had a little social before the big rally on Saturday. And there's this young girl who, you know, looked really grumpy because she was there because her parents told her to come to the social. But in advance, she had um, weaved together like 50 or so little yellow bracelets. And she was like, oh, this is like my way of contributing. And I wanted to give those to I find really special. And so she gave a bracelet to me and a couple of other people. And so... It's really heartwarming to see also um, the youth in their own way getting involved in exploring their own creativity. And I guess one of the main things that we've been seeing coming out of the US, obviously over the last week where, where Myanmar is back in the news, has been the ambassador and the assassination mm -hmm. attempt or plot on his life. 
And obviously that's an ongoing investigation and everything, but we, we are hearing reports that two of these young men are from pro-military backgrounds and have almost kind of infiltrated the diaspora. Like so there's some pictures, you know, floating around with them at protests, holding up pro-NLD posters. So is that a concern for you guys that there may be people like that in America are trying to infiltrate your groups and your advocacy for more sinister means? Yeah. And that's something really early on we were advised to be careful about because we were all quite new to these advocacy spaces and not having our platform taken advantage of for a negative intent. And so to kind of counter that, that's why so much of what we did in the beginning was just talking and listening and hearing what other people were doing and also among ourselves, finding the mentors that we trusted. And so through that, we were able to have more confidence in formalizing our own opinions and actions on what to do. And this meant that we were able to create our own mantra. And so that's something we've posted on our own website about what we see as the future for Brahma. And whenever we sign on to letters or amplify campaigns, we ensure that it abides by these kind of core principles that we've discussed and agreed upon. And so I think fortunately, the work that we're doing within GM4MT is more on the grassroots level. And so in terms of messaging, we are able to echo well what is being said on the ground or among these civil society organizations. But we do have to have like internal conversations anytime we do support something that's more public and making sure that it is of the missions and morals that we we support. But fortunately, thus far, we've been able to avoid any negative overtakes of our platform, which is which has been fortunate. And I guess as well, Sandra, like whenever you're involved in any advocacy work anywhere, there's always risks involved. And I mean, you guys are not without risks as well, but do you feel because that you're not in an immediate threat like people on the ground in Myanmar that when they can't speak out that you guys can keep that narrative going as, as much as possible? Right. Yeah. That really captures how one of our missions is to keep the story of Myanmar alive. And especially early on when you were getting internet blockages and we weren't sure when we'd hear from Benson family again. And this is where we hope to empower other people who do at least have that voice and ability to speak out. And Judge and I both feel like we're very privileged to be living in the US where we're able to do so. And so continuing to use our voices and helping others find our voices is really important to us. And so and the ways that we can help one person find their voice, we can see that snowball effect happening. And I think that as GM4MG is focusing towards more of a youth empowerment focus, that's one thing we really do want to emphasize is how can we help among diaspora and those on the ground with advocacy. I think it is a scary space. And honestly, even before February, I never really engaged in political and grassroots advocacy in the way we were doing now. And so um, I'm hoping that just also showing my story of my own growth can help people find the confidence to do so as well. Yeah, Santa, I don't know if there's anything that you haven't said that you wanted to say or that we didn't ask you, or is there anything? I guess I suppose about GM4MD, just we've been able to bring together people who are really have strong skill sets in, in education and in wellness and data and, and media. But more so through this, I felt like we've really formed a community and I've been fortunate to have met a good number of members of our team in person and seeing them keeping that spirit alive through, you know, all of these months. It's been really, really rewarding. And I was talking to someone how I've been moving across a lot of different states over the past couple of months just for fluctuating like course and, and college reopenings. 
but it's actually just been something that's been grounding for me to have this constant community there. And among our own work calls, it's something that we really do find to be quite special. And we're hoping that we can extend this sense of community to a broader audience. And so I just want to say like, thank you to the GM4MD team for providing that tireless spirit. And, you know, we were just released a Google form application and just interviewed a couple of people really early on. And we're fortunate to have been able to assemble upon our current team. I also think it's sometimes like that when you say, you know, how fortunate you are, like the people who've gotten involved is, is a testament to Myanmar and how much people care deeply for that country and those people. I think even with us, anyone that we have spoken to or reached out to are very willing to help. Anyone who has a connection to the country or has been there, it's just kind of something very special about Myanmar. And I think people just want to help in any way they can. And we're aware that there's many countries, you know, in dire need right now as well. And I guess we're becoming more aware and politically of other countries and their sufferings. But, um, you know, Myanmar is our personal connection. And I think it's just, it kind of gets you and it doesn't leave you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's where we're hoping that people are finding a better work-life balance. And so, um, you know, finding people who are passionate about this, we want to keep them involved and in the loop, but also not being too burned out by all the work that they're doing at once, balancing family life and such. So I think people um, taking a break and not feeling guilty about taking a break, that's something we really try to encourage among the team and other friends who are in contact with. Yeah, I just think what you're doing is absolutely amazing. There are atrocities going on all over the world, but everyone is quite often guilty of just passively feeling bad about that and then not proactively doing anything. You've built up this, along with your your team and everyone else, you've built up this whole community together and you're continuing to exercise your rights that people are dying for in Myanmar right now. So I just can't think of anything more productive that you could have done. And I'm sure listening to you, anyone who's tuning in from Myanmar would just be so grateful that there's people who are on the other side exercising their rights for democracy that they are so longing for in the country. So absolutely hats off to you, Sandra. Fantastic what you're doing and um, um, well done. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.